My name is Seth Manukin. I'm the acting director of MIT's Communications Forum. Uh, we're thrilled that you all came out for the second of our three forums this semester. Uh, our final forum is in April, uh, and we will be having the author uh, Jeff Vandermeer here. Um, I hope you all come to that as well. Uh, I'm going to briefly introduce uh, the people who you all came here to see, and then they will take it away from there. Um, so tonight's session is going to be moderated by Mara Gubar, who is an associate professor of literature um, at MIT. She arrived here this year uh, and is a wonderful addition to literature and to the floor that I'm on as well. Um, and she is the author of Artful Dodgers, Reconceiving the Golden Age of Children's Literature, um, and before arriving here, had directed the children's literature program at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, immediately next to her is Kristen Kashore, um, who, for those of you who are interested in children's literature, I'm sure needs absolutely no introduction. Uh, she's the author of the award-winning, best-selling, critically acclaimed Graceling Realm series, um, which includes Graceling Realm, Fire and Bitter Blue, or Graceling. Is the first one just called Graceling? Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, next to Kristen is Kenneth Kidd, um, and I lost my place on the page. Uh, he also needs no introduction. Um, he's published widely on 19th and 20th century children's literature, psychoanalysis, queer theory, and cultural studies, um, and he's also very well known as a mentor and teacher and friend to many people in the field, uh, and he is the author of two books, um, Making American Boys, Boyology, and the Feral Tale, and Freud in Oz at the Intersections of Psychoanalysis and Children's Literature. So without further ado, I will turn it over to them. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming. I'm so honored to be here with you guys today. And I, they asked me to just leap right in to questions. So okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by asking you what you thought of the whole controversy over the Megan Fox Gurdon Wall Street Journal piece Darkness Too Visible, which came out in 2011 and in a way kind of inspired this or was part of the inspiration for this panel. So, Kenneth, can you tell people about it since not everyone may have read it? Sure. Yeah. Matt, can you guys hear me okay? Okay, great. How many of you have seen that article? Anybody look at it? Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of reaction to it, too. So you may, you may have followed some of that, even if you didn't necessarily see the original piece. But um, pretty simple, in a nutshell, I think it would be fair to say that the piece um, – it was in 2011, the Wall Street Journal, as Mari mentioned, and the basic claim was that YA lit is, is too dark. That a certain amount of darkness, that's fine, that things have gone too far. Um, and she gives a number of examples of topics and emphases which she thinks are, are excessive or over the top. Um, and she contrasts that with what she sort of talks about as the sort of first wave of YA um, sort of problem novel writing, and you know, she's about Judy Bloom, for example, and Judy Bloom kind of becomes the standard uh, for a kind of an acceptable sort of practice of, of YA, and so uh, that's kind of an interesting aspect to the article, but uh, to be fair to the piece, there actually is a lot of substance in it, and, and she talks uh, a good bit about just the problem that parents and, and uh, teachers and librarians have in providing guidance and supervision and just that whole debate about when is that censorship, when is that, you know, what's appropriate, yeah, you know. And, but as one might imagine, this also kind of set off a, a sort of firestorm of response and critique and tweets and, and all kinds of uh, stuff. And a number of people weighed in on this, um, focusing on different parts of the controversy. And, you know, I, I, my read on this is that this question has been there from the beginning. And it's definitely accelerated, I would say, in the last couple of years. And so this is one of several kind of high-profile pieces that have come out 
that have raised this issue, and, and basically how far is too far? You know, when you're dealing with the whole sort of young slash adult, what's too young, what's too adult? You know, how do you decide what that um, dynamic's gonna be? Uh, what's the about right balance of innocence and experience? Um, if you expose people to difficult topics that they may not have necessarily encountered or experienced, is that tantamount to abusing them? I mean, that's often the kind of accusation. So, uh, so it's a pretty, pretty interesting discussion and controversy. So that was sort of the impetus, I think, for the, uh, for the, the forum. So I imagine we'll be talking about some of those texts. And, and I know a lot of you know probably more than we do about some of these uh, texts. So we're looking forward to hearing your, your thoughts about this as well. Mm-hmm. Kristen, do you want to talk about how creative writers responded to it? Um, well, it's actually really nice to hear Kenneth speak because your reaction to it is much more measured and less emotional than mine. And um, I avoided reading the piece once I heard about it for ages because I just knew it was it was just going to make me mad. And I even, preparing for this event this week, kept saying, I should really reread that piece. And I couldn't get myself to do it until last night. And several times while writing it, I sent angry emails to friends. <laughs> just, and I, I was actually a little worried I was going to lose my temper when we started to talk about it. Um, so I'm glad that, you know. <laughs> I love that I'm the voice of measure and reason. It's very ironic in many ways, but please. Um, I feel like, I don't want to try to, you know, analyze anyone, but I feel like I can empathize with where people who have concerns are coming from. Um, of course, you know, we want to protect the children. Um, but... <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, it's an attitude that I think smacks of three things. One, uh, avoidance. Um, you know, the world is is kind of a dystopic place. There are horrible things going on, and actually we need to be engaging with kids about them so that they have some sort of, you know, way to cope. Uh, but also, two different kinds of condescension. Condescension to kids' lives and condescension to their minds. Uh, The notion that the lives of young people are happier or easier than the lives of adults, that's where I start to, I mean, in this field as a writer of children's literature, you get used to condescension. Uh, But the real problem is that the reason that condescension exists is because condescension to young people exists. Um, I can't even begin to talk about the, the the problem of the, the problematic idea that kids have easier lives than we do. I mean, not only do they live in the same world we live in, but they don't have the power we have. They don't have the agency we have, the resources we have, the money we have. They can't, they can't necessarily change their situation. Um, they might not even realize they're in a bad situation because why would they question what people are presenting to them as normal? So... That's the condescension to their lives, and then the condescension to their minds. I mean, kids know how to relate to story. You know, there isn't some age where suddenly you you realize, oh, it's a metaphor, or you know, (laughs) kids. Uh, when I when I stop talking, it's because I'm starting to get mad, so I'm trying to calm down. Um, <laughs> Can I just explain for people who might not know? Like one of the claims Gurdon makes is that 
if you write a book about someone who cuts themselves, right, this might encourage other people, to, the kids, to start cutting themselves, right? right. This kind right. of, like, they don't understand right. and, fiction. And just like adults who read books, kids come to books for many reasons. They come to them for delight. They come to them to learn about something they've never experienced. They come to them to have company in something that they themselves are experiencing. Or they come to them to read a story that might be something they have never experienced and will never experience. But look at that. It still evokes the same feelings that their own life evokes for them. And now, suddenly, they have this whole other language to talk about their own lives. They have this other way to kind of, you know, deal with their own material uh, with slightly more or more, and more of an objective distance. You know, I, I, I'm sure you're all readers. I don't need to explain to you what story is, but you find yourself in this situation when people are saying these things of like, what? Do you read? Like, what happens when you read? I don't understand. <laughs> so, anyway, I'll stop But there. it does seem, I mean, we're not, though, disagreeing, right? I mean, one of the things that struck me about the controversy is everybody immediately attacked Gurdon like crazy, right? In the world of children's lit and, and creative writers. But at the same time, like, there really has been a deluge of, like, dystopian fiction and post-apocalyptic stuff and trauma and narratives of personal trauma, right? And so the question still remains, I feel like, how do we account for that? So maybe we could start that conversation by talking about, like, has it ever been thus? And, like, could, maybe Kenneth could start by telling us a little about the history of sure. YA. Yeah, I, I'll try not to, to, go on, to go on too long about that, but just a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. And actually, in terms of the Gurren piece, there were a couple of other accusations there. One other one was that a lot of sloppy writing was happening, and so I think that's a different kind of conversation, but that's an interesting conversation. I, and then another piece, and I think really maybe a core anxiety, and I think this also speaks to what Kristen just so, so I think, powerfully said it, I think there was the sense that writers are usurping the role of parents. And so I think that's a kind of interesting sort of perspective that somehow uh, we've turned over parenting to, you know, to, uh, sorry, to writers. Sorry, I'm you have speaking. a lot of responsibility there. I'm interrupting with my facial expression. Oh, okay, that's fine. I, I'm not defending this perspective. I can't say I share it, but I think, I think that was a kind of, it's not quite announced as, a, as an argument, but it's sort of there throughout the piece. Yeah, but in terms of the, the trauma and, and um, uh, the trauma question and the question of sort of quote unquote darkness, and I think we, we were talking earlier about this, we definitely want to put that in quotation marks for the obvious reason that dark uh, is, you know, for the obvious reason that there's sort of potentially racist sort of assumptions behind that and this whole idea, this whole association of dark with evil or lightness with good and so on. Let's say difficult, serious, Bleak. mature. Um, I also think dark sometimes is code for literary. I think a lot of the. Um, push against uh, some of this writing is actually that's too difficult. You know, it sort of challenges you emotionally, it challenges you narratively, right, in terms of just the way the language is working, etc. So I think that's also, that's also going on. So in a way, this is new. I think that's probably true. There's been a real acceleration of dystopian sort of literature in the last 10 years. I mean, that, it does go back a ways, but there's been an intense sort of, um, you know, kind of explosion of that. And then I would say probably the, the kind of literature about trauma probably has a 20 or 30 year history depending on how you define that again. Um, but if you, if you want to take, a, I think, a, a broader view, you can argue it's been there from the very beginning. Um, you know, you can talk about different uh, origin points for adolescent literature, but there's certainly an argument to be made for it beginning in the late 19th century, early 20th century. You can then argue further back from that. Some, some historians have done that, and I think persuasively. 
But a lot of those works were fairly serious works. I'm thinking about uh, Dostoevsky's The Adolescent, um, you know, and what else? Uh, the Van Vindekens, uh play Spring Awakening, which is a very intense play about a group of teenagers having some horrible series of events happening to them. And if you were to read this description, you'd think, this is like more lurid, more dramatic, more problematic than anything we could possibly think of now. So a number, and, and a number of works that really reckoned with sort of that um, period of one's life and the basic questions about sexuality, vocation, uh, struggles with parents and other authority figures. So that's there. Um, and I think you see it really all the way up through um, you know, the end of the 20th century. I think the usual history is it started in the 60s, right? It started with the outsiders, with Capturing the Rye, with what we think of as the problem novel with Judy Bloom. But there are many examples before that, many examples from the 20s and 30s. Um, a lot of uh, these books were very psychological because the idea of adolescence is very psychological and defined that way. Um, also very much caught up with literary realism and naturalism as movements. Um, so a lot of attention to conditions of poverty, conditions of immigration, um, racism, and so forth. So there was a fairly interesting history. Some of you, some of you may know some of the, uh, the titles that were very popular in the earlier part of the century. One was 17th Summer, uh, Marine Daily, which is not widely read now, but was hugely read for a long time. In fact, it would, people couldn't keep it stocked in libraries as, la- as late as the 60s and 70s, and actually led to Seventeen Magazine uh, being founded. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. Another would be um, uh, The Member of the Wedding, Carson McCullers. Fabulous book about Frankie, who is attracted to the we of me and wants to marry the wedding. It's a very odd story about kind of queer kinship and relationality, and, and it's just a wonderful book. It was published in 1947. Uh, and so you, you have quite a few of these texts prior to, to the 60s, to the rise of the problem novel and what we think of as the sort of novels of social realism. Um, so I think there are a lot of beginning points, a lot of, I mean, that's kind of a, round, a roundabout way of answering your yeah. question, but I think there are a lot of, a lot of different ways to, to think about it. I think the, the focus on, um, on sort of trauma and atrocity, which I think really picks up steam with st- the first kind of wave of stories about the Holocaust for both teens and for young children, was really late 80s, 90s. Um, and in fact, actually, the picture book got there a little sooner. Just if you look at the publication dates, some of the, some of the picture books were slightly ahead of of Jane Olin's work, for example, or some of the other, um, some of the other Lois Lowry's, A Number of the Stars, um, you know. So that, but that was that was probably around the turn of 1990 or so, uh, and then you really kind of move into the present moment, the, the dystopia kind of displacing in some ways and kind of in some ways folding all these other genres together. So yeah, and I like Freud and Oz. Your book, I yeah. think, is so important in terms of giving us that prehistory and saying mm-hmm. it didn't just start with the outsiders. Right. You know, like right. people were writing about these themes and topics and upsetting things. Yeah. Kristen, as a creative writer, do you sort of consciously think about trying to balance dark with light? You know, or not put in too much traumatic stuff? Or um, I'm balanced. Everything is a balance. Every aspect of the book is a balance. So yes, I am thinking about balancing darkness and light, but not for the sake of any particular reader. Mm. Um, it's for the sake of what this book is asking me for. Mm-hmm. What, what book is asking to be written here? Um, I would say, you know, if we're, if we're d- discussing Bitter Blue, yes. for example. So can, shall I do a little segue in so, for sure. people who don't know it? Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Kristen's um, the final book of the Graceling Realm, Bitter Blue, I was actually going to bring it up when Kenneth brought up the Holocaust because for me, as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, this book, I was reading it and I, I could not stop thinking about the Holocaust. And it's basically, for those who haven't read it, about a girl... Well, you should describe it, actually. I'm going to make you okay. say what it's <laughs> okay. about. 
So uh, Bitter Blue is 18 years old. She's the queen of a kingdom called Mansi in a world that is mostly composed of kingdoms, although in the course of this book, uh, one or two of the kings are deposed and things start to get a little more um, politically complicated. But where she lives, it's a kingdom. Um, her, she's been the queen since she was 10. Her father was the king before her, and he was a psychopathic sadist, basically, who for 35 years um, ruled and had a power uh, that gave, basically he could tell, he told whatever he said, you would believe. He could tell lies, and people would believe them. And essentially used this power to try to create this bizarre kingdom that he decided he wanted to create for some reason that's a little hard to understand. And the way he went about doing that was through just horrific abuses um, that I won't, I won't get into the details of right now. Uh, but, I mean, the, the int- so, so, so the, the premise of the book is that Bitter Blue is trying to figure out how to be queen in a kingdom that is recovering from this, but part of the problem is that part of Lex's power, um, you know, he's making you believe things that aren't true, is that people couldn't even necessarily remember what had happened. So part of the problem is trying to trying to figure out the truth, what actually happened. Uh, people are left unable to forget some things and unable to remember some things. But also, Bitter Blue doesn't know this, but there is a concerted, I guess basically a conspiracy going on to keep all of that silent, to keep it from coming to the light, essentially because people are so traumatized that they can't, they just can't go there. Um, so Bitter Blue, it's a, basically a book in which she is uncovering a lot of, a lot of past trauma, including her own. And uh, the reason I wrote, the reason this became part of this book was essentially, I think there are some unconscious reasons, but the the reasons I was conscious of at the time are essentially related to narrative need. I decided I want to write a book about Bitter Blue. I committed to that idea. I actually um, sat down intending it to be my happy book (laughs) because the book I wrote before it, Fire, was so dark that I just came out of it saying, oh my god, I can't, I can't do something that emotionally difficult again. Uh, this will be my happy book. And instead, I'm going to make it, instead of making it emotionally complicated, I'm going to make it structurally complicated. So I sat down and came up with this incredibly structurally complicated plot. And of course, it turns out you can't write a happy book about an 18-year-old girl whose father killed her mother and was a sadistic psychopath for 35 years. <laughs> so it ended up being an extremely structurally and emotionally complicated book, which is why it took me so long to write. But anyway, um, I, when I actually sat down and said, OK, well, what is Bitter Blue's story, realized that because of a few fairly careless decisions I made when I wrote my first book, Graceling, um, this was a much darker in Graceling, I set up this villain because it was a villain that worked really well with the plot and with the revelations I wanted to, to you know, bring into play. This oh, no one, no one knows that this guy is telling lies that you believe because you wouldn't know that if it were happening. That's cool. Um, but you know, when you actually get to the point where you're writing about the daughter of this man, and the reality of what this man did, it had to be. A, I realized, oh my, what have I gotten myself into? This is atrocious. 
And once I realized that, I had to make it atrocious. But I also, um, in this kingdom, Monsi, there's just so much pain. But I brought in characters from other books and also from other parts of the world who, who I think provide the light, provide the, um, what's our opposite word for dark? Mm-hmm. It isn't light. That doesn't have the association. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joy. The joy, joy. and the, um, just the ease. Um, the pleasure. Mm-hmm. S- because... So you were thinking. I was thinking. I, yeah. I, 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 I think in all my books, it depends on what the book is asking me for, but all of my books so far, I have had some light, and, I, and that's one of the things I'm thinking about. But also because I feel like sometimes, uh, actually, Catcher in the Rye is one of my favorite examples of this. Um, you can hit harder with the pain if things are funny. You know, it, it, contrast helps. Yeah, I think also another amazing thing about Bitter Blue, maybe this is what you were getting at with the structure point, is that so much of the terrible things happen in the It's not like the Hunger Games where like terrible things are happening in the present over and over and over and over again, worse and worse and worse, and it's kind of building. This is, And by the way, I think the Hunger Games is super interesting, so I'm not of ragging on the Hunger Games. But I'm just interested in how in Bitter Blue, I think the reason it reminded me so much of like cultures that have gone through genocides trying to recover was partly because it was all this this sort of it, the book kind of unfolded backward in this amazing yeah. way that all the action is yeah I, well there's yeah, yeah, it's oh. still kind of terrifying to read because you you I mean it's it's so powerful but you sort of um, learn along with Bitter Blue what that history is and there's all this fabulous stuff about cryptography cryptography and sort of uh, learning to read between the lines and, and because everyone who left a, leg, left a record of this had to do so undercover and so you, you, right, ex- right. You, you come through it that way and it's still incredibly scary actually, right. even though this is all in the past. So I think that was really quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you. And I think that that was partly a pushback to this idea that at the end of the book or at the end of the war, everybody's happy. Uh, which is obviously not what happens. Um, but also, um, you know, yes, technically the worst things in Bitter Blue happened in the past because certainly not being presently traumatized is better than, um, you know, being presently traumatized. But one of the definitions of trauma is that it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there, there I'm, unfortunately, I marked. I hope I can find this. Um, oh yeah, here's a line from How I Live Now. Um, this that sh- this is six years after the war. In my brain, in my limbs, in my dreams, it is still happening. So, and the Hunger Games does that too. Yeah. I, Katniss says, I st- yeah. I'm still in the arena, right? And the stru- yeah. I think the structure of that series is really brilliant too, because the second book. I remember when I first read it, thinking, oh another one like they're just doing the hunger games again and then i realized that was the whole point like that she can never get out of the arena yeah yeah right yeah so um i don't know i guess i'm not sure that it yes of course it's true that the worst things in bitter blue happened in the past but i mean it is a book where she is unable to stop someone she loves from jumping off a bridge right in front of her, you know, it's uh, because of the trauma that's still happening. And also, interestingly, because of efforts made to protect her 
from learning about that. So it's, it ties yeah. into what we were saying yeah. before about the wanting to protect young people from the traumas of the world. In Bitter Blue, it's actually a problem, right? Yeah, and, and there's a, there was a point where, um, I think even in the book, at Bitter Blue, where I was, and Bitter Blue was also consciously working with the balance between knowing, finding out what happened, and healing, which sometimes requires, no, don't go there. Like, yeah. it's too, let's not think about that. Um, so that was, you know, something I was thinking mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, for sure. So, Kenneth, another sort of insight that, that happens in Freud and Oz is your insight about the ways in which we now kind of expect children's and YA to sort of heal children. You were mentioning this earlier. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, sure. And, I, I, and just by the way, I think that's what that last point about Bitter Blue is one of the things I love about that because that tension between the truth must come out at the same time, maybe it shouldn't, maybe it's going to be more deforming when it arrives again. And I think that's just such a wonderful tension. The book is, is very... Um, the book is very, um, I think, um, really gets at the, the complexity of that. So it's not just a, oh, thank God we've been able to air all of this, and this, you know, our problems are done. Not so much. There's this kind of repetition, and there's this, and also the sense that maybe repression has its usefulness and its advantages. <laughs> it allows us to do some, some, it allows us to survive and to do some, some powerful things. There was a moment when I had to decide, um, do any of Lex's journals, for you, which actually detail exactly what he did get burned mm -hmm. how many of them get burned because that is just information yeah. that will disappear uh, and that was th th I guess the moment that most encapsulated I think what you're talking about yeah I love that I think it's really it's really effective um, and not an easy thing to do mm -hmm. I think um, and um, yeah so well in, in terms of that expectation I, I mean I think my guess is that it's probably um, I think it's built into the, the broader enterprise of writing for children and young adults, um, just more generally. I think the expectation that it should be educational, that the, the famous phrase is instruction and delight, or instruction with delight. And that's also the question is how much instruction, how much delight do you, do you sneak instruction in with, uh, through, de, through delight? And, and so is, can delight be in, in, you know, instructive and so on? But I think that kind of, that, that sort of presence there. But I, I think there's also specific to adolescent literature. Um, one of the lines I thought I'd read, actually the only line I'm going to read, I think, to use, uh, comes from G. Stanley Hall, who was a pretty famous psychologist, wrote a big blockbuster two-book volume on adolescence in 1904, uh, was kind of the one of the architects of the child study movement. He brought Freud to America to lecture. He was sort of a big presence in sort of social science and psychology. Problematic uh, sort of beliefs in many ways, but pretty influential. But at the end of that book, he actually talks about the need for adolescent literature. He says, we, we've got we've to create this stuff. He says, oh, and it kind of exists already. And has this whole long section where he talks about adolescent literature, um, you know, in the classics and Plato and the Bible and then in Shakespeare and sort of does this whole thing. Then he says, and we need to write more of it. And he also says, and we need to prescribe it. So this is kind of the actual language of bibliotherapy specifically goes way back. This is the phrase he uses. As much of it, this, this literature, should be individually prescribed for the reading of the young, for whom it has a, for, for, uh, for whom it has a singular zest and is a true stimulus and corrective. So really, this idea that you kind of do niche Sort of, you know, sort of application. So I think I think that's been there perhaps all along, and, and I, I think probably most of us don't subscribe to such a uh, clearly instrumentalist sort of uh, attitude about about young adult literature. I think sure, we, it has its uses. Maybe we don't always want to know what those uses are. The whole question about you know what, what's help, what's uh, what you should and shouldn't be aware of, and what's what's good for you, quote unquote, good for you or not good for you, 
is a complicated one, but I think that's I think it's been built in, um, you know, and I think it's also kind of gotten built into the genre. I mean, I think this is sort of interesting. I mean, you mentioned Catcher, and I think mm-hmm. that's many people see that as a sort of beginning point for the. The, the, the fact that, that that story is kind of, we find out, is sort of a uh, retrospective kind of narrative, like, you know, Holden is now telling as part of his, sort of his therapy, we assume, is sort of institutionalized. He's worried that he's having some kind of psychiatric treatment, and so the telling of his tale is sort of is folded into that. And that's also the formula in The Outsiders, which was published in the late 60s. And that's interesting because it's actually an assignment for an English class. And then, of course, the book itself was written as an assignment for, the, for an English class. So the kind of migration of therapy to literature, to, to writing, to, to English as a field is kind of fascinating. But there are a lot of examples of this. I'm sure you can think of others. I was thinking of the perks of being a wallflower, which is as a series of letters, um, it's kind of confessional, epistolary sort of tradition. Um, a speak, uh, Laurie House Anderson's book, which in that case it's more art-making, but it's, it, there's the idea that there, you know, there's a sort of... Um, Kind of movement toward truth. Yeah, exactly. I think that's. I think you. I think many of the protagonists of these books are artists, writers. um, You know, have a kind of creative sort of side to them, and and that's definitely linked with, with the with the with the form itself. So it's kind of interesting that that's. I think built into the the repertoire, Um, and uh, and then I think a lot of it's just still that that kind of uh, ongoing anxiety that that this must be educational, beneficial, um, and. and that if, and and that there's a there's that fine line again between telling too much and not telling enough and and there's kind of adult anxiety about that and I was I was talking with Mara about this a few months ago just just uh, we were just having a conversation I said yeah it's kind of like the the it, it gets better campaign like so the kind of general idea has to be that it gets better you must survive it it gets better and of course there's been a lot of pushback on that campaign too and saying well what if it doesn't get better what if it gets worse what if it gets worse for a while um, you know how and a lot of the um, the kind of response to that campaign has sort of really has made it, I think, richer and more complex and more interesting. Um, but I think there is some real anxiety on the part of adults, maybe, mm-hmm. that, you know, that this literature has to be helpful to kids in ways that are clear to us. And what if they're not so clear? What if the stories are, in fact, don't have some kind of uh, moral or lesson or something like that? This seems like a very good place to talk about the unhappy ending <laughs> and what we think about about sort of and whether or not, and also the issue of, like, books being maybe too pessimistic or cynical and those kinds of questions. Um, Because I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about your sort of your favorite happy endings maybe or questions like that. My favorite happy endings are unhappy endings. Yeah, okay. Even I rewrite it in my question. I don't know. I've always really liked a good old depressing book. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I'm not. I'm, if you want to, if you have anything, I, I, I can't. I mean, I'll, so I'll start yeah. things off by saying, sure. like, I think The Hunger Games is a great example yeah, of, actually, like, yeah, I an, agree. you know, yeah. Well, and that one worked. The structure works so so beautifully and tragically because the whole reason she enters the Hunger Hunger Games in the first place, you know, it's a book that's got all this sociopolitical trauma, but um, the reason she enters the Hunger Games is to is to save her sister. Yeah. And what happens at the end of the third book? After everything she's done, she watches her sister die. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Hopefully you all knew that. Oh, God, did I just... (laughs) Sorry. It's hard to talk about it without, you know... 
it sort of speaks to the fact that sometimes there's a real reason behind mm-hmm. the, the the unhappiness and a real like a political thrust or yeah. something. I mean, I feel like that the Hunger Games are so anti-war. They're like that's what they're about, and they're about the horrors of war. And so, the the, the twist in that series for me is that like you think it's going to get better when she's with the rebels, but the rebels are just as bad as the. As the other, right? Yeah. I mean, so so there's yeah. not going to be some kind of like hooray, happy ending where everything is fixed, you know? It, it's interesting in that case because there's also the epilogue. And so you have, I think you get a little bit of both, um, which uh. is sort of an interesting strategy. It's sort of like, okay, we're um, not going to have a happy ending. We're not going to, yeah, please. Yeah, well, no, I just, I, I've had conversations with friends about the epilogue. Okay. Um, I don't see it as... She's still clearly so traumatized. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't mean just so happy is yeah. probably not the right word for it. But there, there is the there is the uh, there's evidence that she has survived and whatever that might mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. basically the question. And she's trying. And she's trying. She's and, trying. And, and and of course, they have kids, right? So the kids yes, are the future. We believe the children yeah. are the future. Uh, <laughs> we're back to that. So did, did think, she really want those kids? <laughs> yeah, that, you know? she didn't want kids. What do we ever really want? I, I don't know. Well, no, I'm not saying she. Of course, I'm not saying she doesn't like her kids. But you know, it's complicated. It's yeah. complicated. Yeah, I think it's the right tone. I mean, I would. I, I, yeah. I think it's handled really well. I, 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 I think too. she has this problem of like, you know, how do you? You can't just wrap this. You know, you can't wrap it up, and suddenly you have this devastating death of her sister so there's that and then mm-hmm. and 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 it's such a bleak place at that point there's okay we can rebuild the society and we can but it's not gonna be pretty it's not gonna be and then you get to the epilogue and even there it's just kind yeah. of i think mm-hmm. that the tone is is yeah uh, it works for, I mean, that's another argument i've had with friends friends who just hate it but i, yeah. I it works <laughs> for me although at that point suzanne collins could have done anything and i, I would, would have been there yeah mm-hmm. she, I, she just really owned me Mm. well I think another way we're signaled that it's not supposed to be really happy is that we've had Gail say you know she's going to pick whichever one of us she can't survive without (laughs) right which really upsets Katniss but then I feel like that's what she does she's like I can't I can't survive without Mm -hmm. PETA and Gail would just make me angrier this is not like a woohoo! Like I finally chose the love of my life, you know. Jacob team. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a total lure. I feel like that to like hook us in, and we're like, oh, which is it going to be? And then by the end, we're like, everyone is so traumatized that it just doesn't even really. Some of the unhappy endings I like are kind of ironized Indians. And in some thinking of Indians, I'm thinking about, uh, for example, Lord of the Flies, which you know has that great that great ending right, where the, basically the naval officers show up to take them off the island, and thank God they've been rescued from savagery and from and you know the, I mean I think that's it's an allegory, so it works neatly, and I think that's mm-hmm. there you have a certain kind of built-in maybe genre advantage if you if you do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's some other, I, I, I would also say, uh, we were talking earlier about M.T. Anderson's Feed, which is another, uh, I think, pretty fabulous uh, landmark book in kind of dystopian sort of stories. And yeah, it was published in the early 2000s. And the ending of that, I'd say, is fairly bleak. I mean, you basically lose a, again, spoiler alert, but we lose a cherished character, let's put it that way. Yeah. And... Um, and <laughs> And uh, and then the the protagonist who's kind of been an antagonist all along, and that's yeah, also I think yeah. part of the part of the formula here is that you kind of create sort of somewhat unlikable or at least slightly unsympathetic protagonists in this genre if you're going to kind of keep a little distance and sort of maybe work to to defamiliarize or to or to at least not fall in love with the main character and root for them unconditionally. I think that you have a little bit of resistance there. I think that's even there with Katniss a little bit. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. it's sort of interesting, but. 
But yeah, I mean, the ending of that, where it basically a feed, where you know, it's a kind of bleak ending. So you have this kind of awareness on the part of the character. So that's positive, and if right, and then the idea of the reader go, reader learns his or her lesson. Oh, we must resist. We must, we must fight the corporations. We must don't don't take the feed. Um, you know, <laughs> resistance is not futile. If it is, I'm going to go down anyway. I'm going to go down with the ship. But there's a kind of um, a bleakness to it too, of course. You know, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and the humor when he humor. buys thousands of pairs of the same pair of pants. Yeah, exactly. Endless That's pants. How he copes. Right? Endless pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feet is, and the playfulness and the creativity and the kookiness of yeah. the language, yeah, so I oh, think, is so brilliant. Yes. Oh, can I just do? Okay, so, so he's trying to talk to, uh, what's his name? His name is Titus. Her Titus. name is, her name is. Whatever. Violet. Violet. He's trying to talk to her. He's trying to, you know, be all smooth and stuff. And he and he can't find his words. And he's he says, I said, do you mean? I stopped and tried. That could be taken to mean that. You know, we. And then my feed was like tongue-tied, wowed and gaga, for a fistful of pickups tailored especially for this nightmarish scenario. Try Cyrano feed, available at rates as low as. And then, you know, the conversation goes on. But there's this, the, the, the character of the feed is hysterical. Yeah. And the... Um, and very the, prescient. So for those who don't know, it's like you have this thing implanted in your head that's sort of telling you to buy what you can buy. Constant and, advertising tailored to your every situation. Not uh, like anything we know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit more extreme. But I think it's really an awesome and radical thing that Anderson does by making us, making our hero, like you were saying... It's not the rebel forces, right? So much stuff comes out like, you know, Divergent and all these things where you're rooting for the rebels for them to like overthrow things. And here we are in the head of someone who is like placidly accepting of all this, you know? And it's a really neat reversal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is a slight change of pace, but I wanted to ask you guys about, um, in a way, it's kind of nice that people are upset about the violence, because I feel like in general, people are freaking out about sex a lot more than violence. And so I sort of wanted to ask Kristen to talk about reactions she's gotten to her books and whether that's been true for her. Yeah, so um, across the board, the, uh, I think without exception, the concerned emails or letters that I have gotten have been about the premarital sex. Um, it's, ve- you know, it's, it's very irresponsible what I'm doing, um, suggesting that such a thing could ever happen um, and should ever happen. And uh, I, I, one woman told me that, one of my favorite letters ever, told me that getting to the end of Graceling was like finding cockroaches in her ice cream. <laughs> the cockroaches were the, the sex. Um, and here they were, that was some of my favorite thing. I loved how these are fantasy books, so I wasn't really, I don't know what I was expecting. They didn't get married but, and they don't want kids. It's so amazing. <laughs> and, it's about, and there's like stuff about contraception, you know, that's yeah. an issue. And I thought, God, when do you read fantasy? We're like, contraception, yeah. that's when it's written oh, by someone who was brought up Catholic. <laughs> I'm impressed. And is reacting to that, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think of that as part of having, like, a strong female... Like, is that consciously a feminist issue for you? Or? I'm not consciously feminist. Okay. Like, I just... I mean, I guess that's not true. Of course, I'm very consciously feminist. But uh, I couldn't write... I couldn't... I couldn't not, right, include that stuff. Mm-hmm. Because what... How would that be about the world if I didn't include it? You know... 
Um, but was it a surprise to anyone else because of the genre? Like, I feel like I'm used to sex in certain kinds of YA, but for me, it felt like this fresh and amazing surprise. I'm the opposite of the cockroach woman. It's like this amazing <laughs> surprise within a fantasy novel. And I also love that you included non-heteronormative, yeah. like, sexual... Um, well, you know, and, and you're reminding me that there's also one other distinction in the letters, um, which is that they're all from American adult American fans are the ones who are female adult American fans are the ones who send me these particular letters uh, I, I get a lot of letters from European fans not not even not issue, never even mentioned um, the letters I get from young readers uh, I mean this this to me, this is one of the reasons why I get so angry when I read a piece like the Darkness to Visible piece because I, again, across the board, am getting letters from young people who are saying to me, thank you so much for writing a character who's dealing with the things I'm dealing with. I mean, I'm writing characters about queens and you know people who have amazing, spectacular powers, but again, like, kids get metaphor. Thank you for writing a character who feels the way I feel thank you for making me feel less lonely. Mm. And then this woman writes an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to try to keep my temper anyway. But it is really interesting. I think the ways in which sex enters these like fantastic but also post-apocalyptic novels is really interesting. I know we wanted to talk about Grasshopper Jungle, for example, which I don't know how many of you have read, but it's a sort of a tale about grasshoppers gone wild. Um, I, I, don't, I, I really don't know how they're to really, sum it up. They're honestly. really, really big grasshoppers. <laughs> Killer grasshoppers. Yeah. Yeah. Big scary. And it's that used to be people. It's full of sex. But now they're grasshoppers. And I don't know what you guys think. I think it's one of the most amazing representations of being sexually confused as a teenage yeah. boy that I've ever read. <laughs> Even in this like crazy post-apocalyptic giant grasshoppery kind of way. I'm just trying well, to imagine. I'm trying so to imagine what you're it. thinking about this book based on this description. <laughs> like, I've actually read it, and it still it still seems very strange to me. I'm not sure having read it is a great advantage uh, in, in terms of this particular plot. I mean, it's such a strange. Book. Well, I mean, I feel like that that's that's one of the things that's so delightful about it. it's a story about sexual confusion, and in the meantime, all this crazy stuff. I mean, yeah. what a great. And this, you know, this is an example I think of of. Let's write a dystopia for the sake of narrative delight. I mean, let's, this is just ridiculous. And and getting back to the point about unhappy endings, I, I was surprised and delighted uh, with the way it ended. <laughs> like, Sorry, okay. I don't. I've been I've been chastened for giving spoilers. So I don't really um, you can just make something up. No matter yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. No, there there's there's a twist at the end that I that you don't necessarily expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing we could say without giving too much away is, like, I think this is a narrative that's playing with the idea of, like, how structures and books, often everything comes together and gets tied up nicely, yes, like, and in that's holes. what you're expecting. That's what you're expecting. And it just... Yeah, it definitely yeah. explodes that. Yeah. It's, it's by Andrew Smith, and it was published a year or two ago, maybe 2014, I can't remember, but it's Grasshopper Jungle, and he's a very prolific YA novelist, and... And it's a very strange, but sort of set in the Midwest. There's this kind of, a, this is sort of like um, a whole situation where this giant, where this, where this kind of, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's such a strange thing. <laughs> but basically, it's sort of a, a repetition of a 1970s secret experiment, Cold War experiment, 
uh, where a plague strain is accidentally released into this farming community <laughs> in the Midwest. And before we know it, six foot tall grasshopper praying mantis uh, yeah. creatures are eating everybody in sight. And, um, and then the, the three teen characters are two boys and a girl. And there's kind of a triangle sort of going on. And one of the boys is very sort of not quite sure if he's gay or not gay, or maybe maybe bi, or maybe not, maybe. And so a lot of the book's about that, and it's first-person narration. It's intensely first-person. Um, you, you And it's very repetitious, and it's very, it's very over the top. It's very funny. It's very, very funny. funny. It's also yeah. kind of annoying, I thought. Yeah, um, but, funny and annoying. In that way, it's very authentic. Yeah. You know? it's, it's like, it's like, oh my God, please, somebody rescue me from this, from this kid. But it's actually really, really pretty, pretty great, too, at the same time. And, and, but yeah, I think but it's definitely some literature of the absurd, too. It, it sort of, you know, kind of, it feels like this could be Kafka, this could be, you know, mm-hmm. a, a number of, of a sort of um, early modern. Yeah, cool. But it, I'm just going to say, it's like cra- crashed in yeah. with like very realistic. Absolutely. Like this, and I'm interested in that genre mishmash mm-hmm. or that, like, how, how I, live I live now. now. Yeah, how I live now. Which um, fabulous book is a wonderful book. Amazing. Yes, how I live now. I, what I the way I view how I live now is how, how do I put this? It's a story about a fifteen-year-old girl who is desperately anorexic and um, has been rejected by her family, and it's the story of a war. And I feel like, in a way, it's the same story. In a way. Um, I don't know what Rossoff was intending, but this gets to one of the other things we were talking about, just the, um, there's a way in which you can approach a topic of personal trauma by blowing it up and making it a topic of communal trauma, getting that little bit of distance from it, the way you can approach something that is personally just incomprehensible um, by, I guess, you know, finding the metaphor for it, which is something not necessarily more comprehensible, but at least different. Uh, Am am I making sense? Mm -hmm. um, It's a story. I I look at this as the story of um, an anorexic girl trying to recover when obviously it's the story of a horrific war. Mm -hmm. Um, It's both. But it's both, and they're um, the same thing. It's like what you're saying is like the genre, because it, it feels like a genre mix, like if you don't know what's going to happen, it starts off one way, and you feel like it's just a realistic story about yeah. a teen who's going to the relatives, and then it just tilts on its axis and shoots off in this direction. Yeah. It's actually an amazing experience that I've just ruined for all of you who haven't <laughs> read it. Um, but I think what you're saying is that, that the, the weird genre mixing is also in its way the kind of conflation of the personal trauma on the one hand and a more sociocultural or communal trauma on the yeah. other being kind of used to, yeah. Yeah, I, I would add to that too. I think one of the things that um, it's not often talked about in these uh, pieces is, again, literature as literature. Like, you know, how is the writing happening? What sorts of strategies are there? Because this book, she's the master of like one sentence paragraphs. And that, and that may not sound like a, a great description, but if you look at it, it's, it's incredibly. Um, it's very stylized and and absolute control and I speak as a total non-writer a non-expert but I mean it's just it's it's so understated and so that's part of what I think you're talking about is that you you're not quite sure what's going on because she's not quite telling you Mm -hmm. and it's sort of set in a kind of contemporary uh, Britain and there's a sort of some kind of war terrorist situation and everyone's sort of captive but no one's quite sure who's 
who's the bad guy, where are they, and how do you distinguish? And so it's very, it feels very contemporary in that way. But when yeah. you first started, it also feels like it could be about World War II. Um, yes. You know, they're sent off into the countryside. It sounds like the beginning of you know yes, uh, Narnia sure Chronicles or something. Yeah. yeah so, mm-hmm. but uh, but I think that the, the the writing is not incidental to that to that kind of tone and to that. You know, not just the genre mixing, but the the question of expectation. Like, you don't know what to expect, partly because it doesn't look like anything yeah. mm-hmm. that you've seen before. That was my experience with it. I mean, it feels, if anything, I would think it. it if it reminds me of anything, it might be more like some of the early modernist writing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there, there's a way in which, I mean, if you if you just open the book and look at any page, there might be a ten line sentence. Maybe it has one comma. Yeah. Um, and so you begin the sentence, and you have no idea what how many things she's going to go through by the time she gets to the end of the sentence and where it's going to end up. Mm. And it's it's delightful and it brings you along and then suddenly you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's where this was going. And and there's this moment in the book that mirrors that entire structure when all along, you know, there's this war going on, but she doesn't really care because it's not really affecting her and they're riding on this this truck and then suddenly someone gets shot right in front of her and it's it's... It's just like all of those sentences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are just like going along, going along, oh, oh. Um, and that is the moment, I think, mm-hmm. when something really changes in the mm-hmm. book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder, though, if there's an ethical issue raised by the conflation of personal trauma with yeah. so, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking like, for example, Grasshopper Jungle, I'm thinking like, is it really good that the end of the world coincides with someone thinking they might be queer? Yeah. Like that seems like a problematic. Like, okay. do you see what I'm saying? Like, or for example, like when I recommended Bitter Blue to a friend of mine who has a teenage daughter, and she was shocked by the sex, and I was annoyed at her, and you know. But she also said to me, like, did she have to also be the victim of child abuse? Like, couldn't it have just been like the like? Did did there have to be both? You know. And I feel like. So I'm wondering what you guys think about the issue of that conflation of like a personal thing with a sociocultural thing, if there's issues raised. You know, it's interesting for me, um, the issue that I go to first when I, I mean, I think about all these things when I'm mm-hmm. writing, um, or at least I try to, if I'm aware enough, I think about them, is, you know, m- perhaps with Bitter Blue, I was trying to work through um, some of my own personal experiences using a socio-political nightmare. Well, aren't I privileged that I can do that because I don't live in a socio-political nightmare? You know, people who do might resent me using that structure to work through my own little problems. Um, So that's where, I mean, ultimately I feel that every writer has the right to write about the essential fucked upness of the world, um, but that's like the motto of our, <laughs> of our panel. <laughs> but but I love that you brought that up, and I love thinking about these things like that because they really matter, and they're and it's a sort of question where there are often opposite answers to the same question. But um, I'm not really I don't I don't have an answer, but yeah. uh, I, I love thinking about yeah. that sort of question. I mean, I'm sure there are reasons why I made her... Well, she had to be the victim of abuse because that because she was in Graceling. Like, I couldn't change that. Um, but wait a minute. She, your friend had a problem with the fact that she both was the victim of abuse and had sex? Well, so first she said... <laughs> 
first she said there was sex in it. You didn't tell me there was sex in it, and I had just like forgotten. Like I, it just had not made a because it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> that, so then that was with Graceling actually. Oh and yes, then, okay. And then when they got to Bitter Blue, I think her issue was with the the sort of hint of yeah. sexual. And I can understand yeah. that. I actually tried to make it clear that Bitter Blue was not sexually abused by her father. Um, of course, that, that many other people were. The possibility yeah. was raised. Had, had, had yeah. Time yeah. passed that, that she might be. That was, yeah. the, that's that was that actually was a really difficult thing to balance because mm-hmm. would she remember if she had? So yeah. I um, so I, I did what I, I could there. Um, but, I mean, we can also ex- extradite this to, like, how I live now or something, let, you know, like in the sense mm-hmm. of, like, anorexia is somehow cured by going through a war? Like, in a way, yeah. you're sort of like, yeah. oh. Like the conflation is starting to, you know, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I think it raises issues. I guess, which is is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a it's a a great it's a hard question to answer in the abstract. Yeah, I I I think you're you're definitely. Um, I think right to flag it. I mean, I was just, I, I hadn't made that, the connection between that and another book called The Hunger, which makes a similar kind of, it, it's sort of a time travel book and it goes back to, you know, the kind of, to sort of Armenian genocide and there's this, and then also it learns not to be anorexic and it's sort of very strange. It just seems, that's probably not a fair summary, but um, <laughs> <laughs> probably not a particularly objective summary in any case. Um, but I think the same kind of coupling I think it's right to ask questions about those sorts of pairings. I don't know if it means that it can't work or it can't be progressive. Yeah, please. Can I suggest something, which Mm -hmm. is that um, the people who think kids shouldn't be reading these books could be having these conversations with the kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, that's what you do. You talk about it and you disagree and you... Mm Talk about it. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I would agree completely. And, and in the case of the grasshopper jungle thing, I was I, I found it really annoying too that this kind of apocalyptic scenario is paired with this exploration of queerness. But in a way, I also like that because it's not kind of queer affirmative in a sort of some dumb way. And so I like that mm-hmm. it's sort of you know just going in all kinds of directions. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, do I worry a little bit that maybe some people would, that would just reinforce the association? Yeah, because you know I have a sort of investment in sort of what I think of as kind of progressive representation. So that's the tension, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. You know, that between that and this kind of idea that, uh, well, queer is queer. That's pretty queer. You're going to get any queerer than grasshopper jungle, I don't think. And totally. Not only in terms of the sexuality, but in terms of all these other things, in delivery and tone and sequence. And, and, and so, and I like it for that reason. Part, part I think, largely because I find it annoying. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's something that's sort of st- about it that sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think girls are kind of absent. Oh, yeah. girls are totally absent. It's a bad. I mean, I think this the girl is an has issue nothing. For, she has no character, really. Yeah, that's but great. I feel like that's kind of the point. I mean, it's like a lot of <gasps> yeah. stories between these two male characters. It yeah. is. It is. You know? I, I feel like his, and we don't have to get into this, but I feel like he, uh, the character's attitude is completely mm-hmm. um, appropriate and understandable. I feel like the structure of the book could um, have used a little bit more thoughtfulness. Like, why sense. not? Why not just make one of those characters who's actually doing something a girl? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I feel the time has come, the walrus said, to open it up to the audience because we have so many wonderful experts in children's lit and YA and uh, you guys should have time. But I am going to ask you to go to the mic um, so that that it can be recorded for posterity if you have a question. (laughs) So just hop right up. (laughs) Okay, I wanted to um, ask this question earlier on. Um, so thanks for opening it up to, to us. Um, and it goes back to the question about sort of why um, young uh, adult literature is 
delving deep into the darkness of personal trauma stuff. And I wondered, and Kristen, I think you alluded to this to some degree, is how much of this is, is adults processing they're processing these issues. And the reason I ask, too, is that um, I work with youth, so I delve into young adult literature every now and then, and I just finished reading um, uh, Jandy Nelson's I'll Give You the Sun. Yes. And I just loved it. And as a, as a gay man who was in the closet and way in the dark for so long, and until, not coming out until I was 29, having, what, having a piece of literature like that to have read when I was younger how would that have helped and how would that have transformed? But you know, sometimes I think I haven't had enough of really good young adult literature when I was young, and I love going back and dipping into it now and mm-hmm. it's sort of an opportunity to sort of relive yeah. an adolescence that I never fully embraced or could embrace, especially being um, gay and being in the closet back in the, you know, in the early 80s. So... Back to the original question, how much of this is adults really sort of grappling with and um, processing all this incredible stuff that has happened to us, to our friends, to our our neighbor's friends? Yeah. Yeah. So that's my question. Yeah, great question. It is a great question. Um, I mean, I'll just say that I kind of think that if an adult is making art, that's probably what they're doing. Um, maybe, maybe that's too. Always. Maybe that's too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I certainly. I don't know that it's always conscious. I. I, uh, sl- I kind of skimmed Bitter Blue last night because it occurred to me that I was going to be expected to remember what happened in my own book, <laughs> um, and was actually kind of stunned to make connections between the book and my own life that I didn't make while I was writing it. Mm. Uh, Probably would not have written it had I gone into it knowing, oh, there are parts of this book that are about me. That shouldn't be so surprising. For some reason, I had to write it. Um, I'm not sure what else I have to say other than I, I just think that for many writers, that's whoever they're writing for. Mm-hmm. That is at least partly what writing is about. Uh, it, it's a way um, writing can be, you know, just to, to, to use a little bit of <coughs> psychological language. Uh, writing a story is a, is a way of getting just enough dissociation from your own story that you can touch it and deal with it and work with it and so on. I would say. Can I add on and say, though, that there are children's and young adult lit critics who are really worried about the issue that you're raising. And I'm thinking of a book like Welcome to the Lizard Motel, which is actually not, it's a popular press book, but it's about a teacher who is worried that all these books she's supposed to give her, like, sixth graders are, like, the giver and um, number the stars and all these incredibly and dead dog stories, right, where the dog dies in a traumatic fashion, like Sounder, right, and all this stuff. And I think she's really saying, like, this is a little worrying. Like, is there some reason why we feel the need to try? Like, a, a good book, one teacher, one of the administrators says, makes a child cry. And she's like, <laughs> why? And if you're interested in this, Eric Tribunella is a children's like critic who just wrote a whole book about how 
there's a kind of weird thing going on where it's safer to be a child now in the United States than it's ever been. Like statistically in the past, it's safer. And so his argument is we feel the need to like traumatize children artificially through the literature that they read. Um, so I think there are people who are concerned about children's and YA in particular who are sort of thinking through this. It's yeah. a, it's a, I mean, when I write, I'm not thinking about the age of my audience, but it is this uh, kind of uncomfortable responsibility knowing that these books are um, not having control over who reads your books and I, I'm not. I'm not even sure what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> it, it just there. There is a. There is a discomfort there and a worry uh, about whether I, I'm somehow being irresponsible. If what I'm doing when I'm writing my books is working out my own stuff, should I really be subjecting anyone to that? But on the other hand, then the the honestly kind of miraculous thing that happens is that someone will come up to me in a signing line and basically thank me for writing something that allowed them to work through something mm -hmm. in the exact parallel way that writing it allowed me to work through mm -hmm. it. It's like I was doing this for myself. Oh my God, it helped you. I've never even met you. Um, the, you know, the way a book can become a, a thing of its own and, and create this connection such that I, I feel like, you know, I write one book, and then every time someone reads it, if you read it, I've now I've written two books. If you read it, now I've written three books. It's a different book mm -hmm. every time it's read. Mm. Again, I've lost track of the point or the question, no, no, no. so I'm just going to stop talking. But thank, thank God nobody reads scholarly books because um, <laughs> that, you know, and, and when they when they do, people do. They don't necessarily ask these questions about about what sort of issues we're working through them. So don't start looking at that because well, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's Freud. much more revealing. I know. <laughs> I actually did have somebody once make a category remark about biology. Um, so uh, just a strictly professional. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, inter it's, it's an interesting question and complicated one. I think there was some real, I think that anxiety hangs over, you know, the whole landscape really of children's and YA literature, but I think um, especially maybe YA because it's so close to adult literature proper, that, that line is always what people are interested in. And I think there is a real sense that you're, you know, you are writing, uh, you're writing, you may be writing partly for your younger self or partly for the child you were or maybe did not quite get to be in the case yeah. of, of queer kids especially. I think there's a kind of real uh, legacy sort of there. And I think this idea that, you know, you're, you're willing into, into existence, um, actually, the possi possibilities for people, scripts that they can follow. And, and uh, so I think that's a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Should we move on? Yeah. Sure. This is Kathy. way too tall for me. <laughs> um, I didn't mean to stop the conversation, but I was interested in your raising Lizard Motel because I've, I see that book as doing all the things you said it does, but yeah. also as being really confused and tense about the difference between public reading and private reading. Mm -hmm. And so much of what Kristen and Kenneth have talked about is how young adult literature itself kind of interferes on the adult's relationship with the young adult mm -hmm. as, as being somewhere between that public and private. So in young adult mm -hmm. literature, we can look at the spectacle of young adulthood. We can put Katniss on the stage. We can watch her as adult readers, but also as young adult readers. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of experience her young adulthood both as a character, but also as an observer. Mm -hmm. And so Kenneth and, and, and Kristen and Mara, I would love you all to talk about sort of what is that adult anxiety around young adulthood? And how are the ways in which dystopian fiction 
But I also think young adult realistic fiction really pathologizes young adulthood mm. in problematic ways. Mm. Um, and how do we, you know, as a culture of adults who are readers and who may be working with kids and who are writers who are definitely speaking with kids, how do we understand our anxiety around the very state of young adulthood? That's, that's, a, that's a complicated and hard question. Yeah. Did you have any immediate? No, you go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm not sure I would know how to answer. I'd be curious about uh, your, th your thoughts about that too, Kathy. But, uh... <laughs> Afterwards. I'm not in your class anymore, Kathy. I don't have <laughs> But the pathologizing yeah. thing seems to come out of part, you know. Be yeah, I mean, I think there is a profound ambivalence toward toward adolescents that we've seen across the the century, right? We we love them, we fear them. You know, they're these strange exotic creatures, and yet they are us. And so that kind of you know uh, schizophrenic uh, sort of orientation, I think, is there. And I think that that's so. I think that's a huge problem. And I think maybe maybe that's why. The dystopian. It's interesting because the descriptions of adolescent literature now is dy is dystopian, right? Like the landscape is really scary and dark, and uh, you know horrible things happen to you uh, if you go there. And so it's kind of, kind of interesting. That it's kind of applied to the to the literary world, um, you know. It's, so the so, so the dystopian kind of uh, impulse, I think, is is linked to that ambivalence and linked to that anxiety. I think a lot of it is about sexuality. A lot of it's about power. I think it's a lot. A lot of it's about um, maybe the fear. Uh, about mortality and about being a, a kind of being replaced in this sort of generational sort of reality of, of time and, and just the sort of moving moving into adulthood and what that what that means. Um, I, I think you see it play out differently in some of the dystopian sort of trilogies and series. Um, you know, I think there's various levels of I don't know what the right was spectacle you said or or, or kind of um, exhibition of adolescence there, and uh, it's it's kind of interesting. I think some of the some of the writers managed to kind of get around that. Problem, or at least have a somewhat, you know, they pro problematize the figure. I mean, when it goes too far, that's probably what you're asking about is what, you know, when does that go too far and it becomes this sort of exhibition, um, and when does it not go far enough? I was thinking about the um, the Ugly series, which, you know, the, the main character, Tally, is a is ugly, and then she's a pretty, and then she becomes a special, I believe is the sequence, yeah. yeah. And the special, the specials are like these superhumans that prey on the rest of them. And so you're with her on this journey, and it's a very strange thing because she becomes in some ways less sympathetic and kind of, you become sort of like, well, wait, what, what is this whole world, and why are we now... Why are we now doing this sort of like Superman kind of thing? And you always feel like she should just stop it pretty. Yeah, I mean it's very. It's, a, it's not my favorite of series, but I like that you're taking on this strange ride of, of kind of ambivalence. I mean, so basically that's that's the way I would describe it. Um, that's I don't think I'm answering the question at all, um, but um, happy to have other other thoughts about it. Um, I feel like I need to sit with that question, um, yeah. but I don't. I, I mean, there is certain there is certainly a discomfort in understanding that the literature you're writing you're writing for people who can't who aren't writing their own literature you know so like the ethics of the responsibility yeah. like, so what yeah. is, are your portrayals fair are they are they accurate are it, they... it's so much the writer is in the, such a position of power i don't know the way around that <laughs> Well, this seems like also a good time. One of the questions we were thinking about talking about is like, there's YA is actually really diverse, right? I mean, there's lots of funny YA and other kinds of books out there that we don't always talk about. So I was going to invite the panel to sort of talk a little bit about funny YA or not like totally pathologizing, <laughs> like dark, scary YA. Do you have favorites? It's funny because I, I looked at my bookshelf, I looked at my favorite 
row, and I kept and I kept saying, "Oh yeah, I'll talk about when 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 Mara asks this, I'll talk about Margaret Mayhew." And then I was like, "Oh my God, she's Whoops. like the creepiest writer ever." <laughs> but because I, I but but the thing is, it's all about balance and um, the book, The Tricksters. Yeah, it's that amazing. doesn't have any you know whatever super super. It's got every book has some creepy stuff in it, but. Um, who else? I was looking at the, the Cynthia Voigt Kingdom series. Um, I was thinking about Melina Marchetta's Saving Francesca. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if you get into Jellicoe Road, then you're getting more into the... Yeah, no, I, 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 some of those are some of mine as well. And I, I was thinking maybe oh, if you want to go with yeah. uh, uh, over-the-top utopian David Levithan's Boy Meets Boy, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, it might actually be too too oh, yeah. loved at this point. But it's actually, it is kind of a wonderful book, and partly because it's so ridiculously utopian. Mm-hmm. And there may be some others. I mean, maybe Francesca Leah Block's work might kind of fit under that oh, category. Yeah. There's, these are just some examples. I mean, there's, I think there are quite a few that are playful and funny. I mean, Anderson's book, as we mentioned, is hilarious. I mean, the humor is devastating, too. So it's, yeah. uh, I, I think a lot of this, too, it might be it might be useful to think about dystopian as a, as an adjective that kind of runs across genres, right? So it's not just uh, it's an impulse or a threat, right? So I think there's I mean I think you could argue Harry Potter uh, has strong dystopian sorts of tendencies, especially mm-hmm. as you move into the the later books where he's more adult and it's darker and it's more dramatic. And, and so I think you know thinking of it that way as opposed to I mean there are, there are dystopian stories about dystopias, right? When we've got that group, but there's also a kind of real uh, T- sense in which that that thread is there in so many genres, mm-hmm. and not not only fantasy and science fiction, it's there, and you know I think some of the older science fiction classics and Alan Ingle and and so forth. I also um, wonder, and a conversation with a friend helped bring this to the forefront of my mind, whether YA really is so much deeper and darker than other literature, mm-hmm. or is it just that we. We feel that it shouldn't be because it's a good question. Kristen and I were also talking about E. Lockhart's Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks. One of my favorite books in the world. An amazing book. But it's funny how I I like the idea of strands because I was also going to mention Ellen Emerson White's uh, President's Daughter series, which I adore and everyone should run out and buy and read. Um, And but there's a lot of trauma kind of woven into that. Mm In ways that I, as soon as I thought of an example, I was like, well. Oh, yeah, except, oh, except. <laughs> yeah. Right. But there's a lot yeah. of great stuff out there. It, I just wanted to gesture toward that diversity. Um, but mm-hmm. you are waiting to ask a question. This goes backwards a little bit okay. to um, the notion of these adults who are concerned that YA and Children's Lit is introducing children to trauma. And I just, I'm, I'm wondering if that feedback ever comes from any kids or teens at all because it it seems to me that the violence in our field whether it's you know individual abuse guns cops state whatever it is is all over the world and kids are growing up with that and kids know that and Mara you said something about you know it's it's safer today that may well be true but it's not that safe. Right. And it's safer if you're white, and it's safer if you have enough money to eat food. Like, but there's so many ways in which it's not safe for, sure. for so many people that I just wonder if the adults who have that particular concern, um, do you all think that they may be holding on to some notion of childhood and adolescence that is not really totally true? Yeah. I mean... 
I don't, I honestly find it so hard to get into um, their mindset and what it is that they're they're thinking. I mean, I feel like their their eyes are closed. Um, uh, you know, it's so <laughs> to be. Oh God, no, it's just I just was going to start a sentence with to be human, but <laughs> uh, you know. Since the dawn of time. <laughs> Since the dawn of time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just uh, the the notion that, that 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 kids are not suffering and aren't exposed to darkness. I mean, how can they? How can, it's it's really naive. It's really naive and it's harmful. Uh, yeah, I yeah. I I agree with everything yeah, you said. I think you're right, Rebecca. I think that's absolutely right. And there's a kind of um, it's interesting too because the accusation is sort of cyclical. We've seen it before, right? Um, most recently in the '60s, a real reaction to the problem novel and to the kind of you know the rise of Judy Bloom and Robert Lipside and all those uh, and go ask Cormier. Alice and yeah Cormier, Cormier yeah especially Cormier. Cormier I mean that's that uh, uh, you know that was but I mean a lot of the a lot of the um, yeah a lot of the um, the critique then was this is it's gone too far uh, it's it's too hopeless it's too it's too dark it's too, and again it's it's coming from mostly reviewers it's coming from mostly parents I don't think there's any evidence of kids saying oh my God how can you how can yeah. you force these horrible stories to my face? I have certainly never gotten that in any letter I've ever yeah. received. And I also think it's funny that um, in the Darkness Too Visible article, she's now saying, Judy Bloom is okay. It makes me wonder if in 30 yeah. years right. someone will be saying, you know, the stuff now is okay, mm-hmm. which then... Yeah. It's kind of like with the picture book scene, right, where the wild things are. It was completely scandalous when it came out. You know, horrible, <laughs> the stuff of nightmares. And, and now, it's, it looks, now it's the standard, right? You kind of go to that, oh, this is how you work through fears. This is yeah. how you, this is the template for what we think of as a kind of normal life. Yeah, one of, one of, the, um, one of my notes was uh, a producer of, of the TV show, um, Grange Hall, which is a, a British uh, sort of realistic, yeah, sort of sitcom, uh, sitcom, <laughs> series, um, actually uh, wrote in response to some of the same criticism of the show. It was child viewers who regularly suggested, uh, wrote in and suggested topics such as bullying or drug abuse for future inclusion. Far from gloomy adult producers foisting their pessimism onto a young, adult audience, onto a young audience, it seemed children themselves most wanted to hear about the darker side of life. Now, granted, he probably has a particular investment in that perspective, <laughs> right. but it seems plausible, um, and it seems uh, at least needs to be part of the conversation. Well, and you can also look at what writing children themselves do produce. Like, I don't know if you guys have read Stone Soup recently, mm-hmm. but my 8-year-old gets it, and it's writing by children for children, 8- to 13-year-olds or something like that. And oh my gosh, death, divorce, bullying. Like, like I, I said to my son, Are, do you want, this is really <laughs> upset. I'm really upset. And he's like, no, Mom, this is real. Like, I really like this. And I was like, okay. How like, dare you force your childhood on me like this? <laughs> Do we have other? We do. I do. I, I have a young adult child. I have a 16-year-old daughter uh, who's had a whole variety of misadventures in her life. But one of the things that she became involved with was self-harm. And she found some books on the topic interesting and helpful. She read Willow and came away from that saying, why would they present this topic and suggest that this is something that kids can deal with themselves and not seek out an adult to help? And she felt like that's a really irresponsible message to give a child, to say, yes, you're, you're struggling. Don't bring, this, don't bring this up to anybody. Keep it with your peers, and you're all ready to deal with that. I'm just curious about kind of the responsibility of addressing an audience with a message that the audience actually may say, that doesn't ring true. Mm-hmm. That's 
Mm. I haven't read Willow. Have I haven't you? Have you? Mm. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, this is what you were discussing a little earlier. It's just that that kind of it's such a huge responsibility. I, I, yeah. That's why I'm so glad I haven't undertaken it. I can only imagine what that that sort of pressure is and like. Especially since I, I know that I and I expect many many writers aren't approaching what we're doing uh, with the notion of it being instructive. Um, Everything is no, yes, but uh, but since that isn't part of the motivation, then th then the responsibility becomes even more uncomfortable. Like you you just you're there's something you are trying to work out, something maybe that author was trying to work out about something else, and this is one of the consequences. Um, that's just what happens mm -hmm. in in books. Um, it's, it's interesting that some, some authors seem to have taken on uh, that. It seems like it is a big burden, uh, yeah. potentially. I was just thinking about uh, Julie Bloom, who people wrote to, and she published several volumes of letters um, you know, uh, about that she received, um, where people were responding, kids were responding, parents were responding to the topics. A lot of it was affirming, thank you for telling this story mm -hmm. about whatever this difficult topic was. But, um, but she really became a kind of um, sort of mentor and a kind of almost like a lay therapist in some ways. And it was it definitely, it seemed like it was a role she embraced, but also really had has been uh, difficult. It's a serious burden, right, mm -hmm. to put on literature or authors to expect them to sort of take on lay therapist or mm -hmm. teacher, parent, like kinds well, of roles. And I, I would also say, again, I haven't, I haven't read this book, but this a book that strikes one reader that way might strike another mm -hmm. reader another way. So... There, I mean, when it comes down to it, there. When when I'm at my writing desk trying to make a decision, you get the overwhelming impression that there is no right decision. You give the book to ten different readers, and five of them come back at you saying, "You have got to change this one thing. This is a real problem." And the other five are saying, oh, "This was my favorite part of mm -hmm. the book." Mm. Uh, and you realize that what you have to do is just follow your instinct. And hope that it will hit, it, hope that it will touch a reader the right hope that it will touch the reader it's meant for, and hope that in the case of your daughter, that was a very intelligent reaction, and uh, you know it spurred a, a, a good conversation. Hope that the readers in that situation can get the distance for I mean, I, I feel like readers. Our readers notice when something is bothering them about a book, mm -hmm. um, and that you know I'm I feel like I'm fumbling a little bit with my words. I'm trying to articulate something that's more of a feeling. Um, I don't know, but I do think like I'm thinking about the criticisms that have been lobbied against um, Winter Girls and anorexia yes. novels. Like yes. on the one hand, like these novels are trying to give voice to like what it's like to be anorexic and and. But on the other hand, people are like, well, it's like an instruction book for how to become anorexic, right? Like, you cannot yeah. control at a certain level right. how a book reads or, 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 or what it does. And that's a, per that's a perfect example. Uh, you know, a good friend uh, of, of mine considers that book to be an instruction manual for anorexia. Yeah. I consider it to be an amazingly accurate representation mm -hmm. of anorexia that has t many, many helpful benefits, you know, like if that's what you're reading it for. Yeah. Um, so it's tough. You know, so, and we're both 
smart readers. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I feel like that book is perfect. But obviously, different books <laughs> hit different people different ways. That's just the way it is. I mean, I, that might essentially be what is at the basis of the entire problem. We can't control what this is going to do to you when I hand it to you, you know. <laughs> literature but that's yeah. that's that's life <laughs> and people learn how to deal with that other questions oh good Cora hi um, so obviously there's this character you know the, the woman warrior and you find it in Katza and Katniss and Savory and Alana and all of these incredible characters and I was just wondering something I've been noticing more frequently and I think I read Graceling right when it came out so my memory may be fuzzy and I honestly didn't read fire Blue, bitter blue. Yes. yes. So exactly. Yes. Um, but one thing I remember from the Hunger Games that you guys touched on briefly is that you know Katniss is like, I don't. Do I want to bring children into this world? I don't know. It's so dangerous. And then at the end, she ultimately does. But it's more of a struggle. Oh, Katniss. Katniss. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Um, and um, I'm just wondering that whole thing about you know. I, I remember when I used to read novels, I would kind of think to myself like, Oh, is this going to end with a wedding? Is this going to end with her having babies? Like, I don't know if that's what I want. And as a young female, that was a really interesting thing to be kind of battling with. And I've noticed that more frequently now, you don't necessarily see these female characters ending and being like, you know, time for babies, you know what I mean? Um, and Katza thinking about her wanting to start an academy or like a fight. It was something like that where she wanted yeah. to teach young women how to fight, right? Um, so I'm just wondering if you have anything to say about, you know, people not necessarily wanting babies in marriage and that being kind of the end game. It's not really the end game anymore. Just yeah. curious. Yeah. Uh, well, what I what I will say is that, so as I mentioned before, this is, well, I, I guess before what I said was the main, you know, concern letters that I get are about the premarital sex, but they're also about the, well, it's premarital sex. Why doesn't she, why don't they get ma married? What, hopefully she's going to grow up someday and realize how important it is that she get married and that, that the true, you know, life is not fulfilled until she has the babies. Um, people have told me this in letters, in it, the most unbelievably condescending way. People have said to me, do you have children? And if not, why not? I want to respond, well, I had a child, but it got run over. Like, I, you know, I, I just, I want to say something to point out to them what a rude question that is. But anyway, I'm getting off track. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> Thinking about endings. Right, right. Um, so, so these are the these are the letters I've gotten from the the adults, and then over and over and over again, I have gotten letters from young women who thank me for creating a representation of a of a female character in literature who doesn't want to get married and have babies, which they've never seen before in a book. Uh, uh, you know, and it's the idea too that that Katza is anti-marriage because she herself doesn't want to get married, like. Other people in the book are married, and she's not mad at them. <laughs> no. You know, um, this, it's it was so important to me. I, I probably to write Graceling and end it that way because I had never seen it in a book, and I and I had a, a friend who said to me, you know, I love that you do this, and then she said something that my readers don't, my friend readers, the ones who are my early readers, don't usually step in and do. She said. I just really hope she never does. You know, if this is how you're going to write her, keep her that way. And I could just honestly, flatly say, don't worry. She never will. <laughs> it happened because, to Joe March, but because, it's not going to yeah. happen. <laughs> not gonna happen. Because Anne of Green Gables went down, but... That's, 
Because you can be a fulfilled person. Like newsflash, <laughs> you can be a fulfilled person and not get married and have kids. Like, why am I even saying this? Like, why does this need to be said? 2015. Why do I need to be getting letters from people who are thanking me for introducing this concept to them? Shocking. I, I do like that a, a number, it seems like a number of this dystopian series actually feature strong female characters and, and heroines. When that's pretty interesting. I mean, there are, are some precedents uh, in fantasy, but it's not as common. You know, about Robin McKinley's work, Hero mm-hmm. in the Crown, for example, mm-hmm. in that series, wonderful series. And, yeah, and I think that's a real, real powerful series. And, and, but it is so often the kind of Harry Potter sort of formula. And so it's, yeah. it is, I, I, love, I love this about your work. One of my favorite things, uh, as well as all the emphasis on storytelling and, and memory and just mm-hmm. that. But uh, I think that's uh, that's a really kind of exciting uh, dimension, and there, so that's interesting that dystopian fiction seems to make a space for that. Although I think it's hard because we were talking earlier just about that representation of character. I mean, Katniss just get there's such drama around her. You know, is she too cold? Is she too heartless? Is she too? And there's just such, such you know kind of interest in her character, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 so I think that's fascinating actually as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the wonderful thing about being a writer who you know who goes on to write more books is that then you can you can address the opposite thing in the next book. Yeah. Fire, you'll if you ever read it, you will discover really wants to have kids and can't. And you know that that's the joy of of well, that's one of the many joys of uh, being a fiction writer. You just you can do all the things. <laughs> do all the things. Question. Yeah, um, so when I was a young adult in the 70s, my peers and I, I think we also really loved the dark stuff. And there wasn't much of it, like, in the in the YA stuff at the time. So we used to read, like, On the Beach and Stephen King, you know, The Stand. Yeah, yeah. Flowers in the Attic. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But when I loved that series. But, you know, when I became an adult, I looked back, and I'm like, why did we want to read all that dark stuff? And I, I don't know, when I thought about it... it I mean, at the time, when we were that age, you know, in that generation, like we, like our parents used to say, like, why do you want to read that apocalyptic stuff? And to us, <laughs> I think it was kind of hopeful because, like, the apocalypse to us was like a chance to wipe away the kind of <laughs> bogus adult world that was created. And it was like the time for us to shine. Like, that's when the world would be really awesome after the, our parents blew themselves up. <laughs> we, then we could, like, do things the right way. So it was... Like, what they saw was as darkness, we saw as, like, a new beginning. Mm-hmm. And same thing with trauma. Like, I think when, when we were adolescents, we felt really repressed. And so trauma was the chance to whip out your sword. And, you know, you couldn't do that. And be, you couldn't be the hero without being surrounded by trauma. So the more trauma, the more mm-hmm. chance for personal discovery and mm-hmm. elevation. So... What our parents looked at, to me, as darkness was our chance, like our hope. Like, we hope this horrible thing happens so we <laughs> can have our moment to show how awesome we are or, you know, wipe away the status quo and start new. So, anyway, I just wanted to know what your take on mm-hmm. that was. It's a, it's, a great, it's a great, I love that perspective. And I, I, I think I shared that. I think I had some of the same interaction with Stephen King. And, and, uh, and, and also, I think even if you just think about some of the, "Quote unquote classic American children's stories. They're all about orphans, right? So people have pointed yeah. out that basically you the have first to dispose. Thing you do is kill yeah, the you parents. have to get rid of the parents in order to launch the narrative, even if it's so, <laughs> just a nice little travel story or a nice little, you know, mystery, and not even necessarily anything that's thematically apocalyptic or, uh, or 
uh, you know, um, you know, explicitly traumatic. So that's a kind of interesting, interesting issue. Um, you know, I think having having the parents out of the way for our various devices allows you to, to kind of, um, yeah, to to have that sense of adventure and that sense of ownership. Um, you know, and I think maybe some of it's just the, the aspiring to you know to adulthood. That's a lot of it. They talk a lot about you know readers tending to read up in terms of identifying with characters who are slightly older than they are and kind of like thinking about that. Um, okay, so, and some of it's about sort of seeing yourself as maturing, seeing yourself mm-hmm. as moving in that direction. So it, I'm not, maybe aspirational is not the best word for it, but something, something about that identification mm-hmm. could be very, very powerful as well. So it's a good point that it's not, ne- bleak stories aren't necessarily bleak reading experiences and, um, and in fact could be just the opposite. Mm-hmm. This this doesn't relate. Well, I guess it does relate to to, to what you just said too. But I th- I feel like one aspect we haven't touched on is readers' choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, if if we're starting with the great concern over what kids are reading, well, are they choosing what they read? I hope they're mostly choosing what they read. And if they aren't getting something out of it, realizing I'm not getting something out of this, and then going to look for something else. I mean. Mm-hmm. If a kid is reaching for a dark book, there's probably a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's patterns to that. I was thinking about you know um, one of the one of the points that people often make about the history of children's lit is that you have tales like Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels that get, that got kind of appropriated by kids and kind of brought into the into the you know to the landscape of children's literature. And I think a similar thing happened really with some of those great dystopias of the early 20th century, Brave New World. Uh, 1984, Animal Farm. Animal Farm is taught widely. At least it was. I don't know if it's still taught widely. Anybody read it? Like in middle school or high school? Okay, that was like vital to my middle school experience. And sort of teaching you, you know, about you know what allegory is and what trauma is and what, you know, what sort of what the the, the dangers of kind of collectivist, you know, sort of um, oppressive thinking and not good, bad collectiveness, not good collectiveness. So mm-hmm. that, that whole that whole tradition, and uh, so that's kind of interesting because those texts I don't think were originally necessarily envisioned as mm-hmm. for kids, but they became part of the repertoire and then even got folded into this sort of educational mm-hmm. scene, which is kind of interesting. Lord of the Flies is another example. I mean, it's kind of you know, really routinely taught. Like, that's how you learn about mm-hmm. irony and allegory and, and all of these things. And uh, Or even Ender's Game, which even was Ender's not Game. originally written for children but got yep. kind of appropriated mm-hmm. by them and now comes out in children's editions. Yep. And I think that sort of brings up, like, you know, what you were saying... We live in a society in which, especially in American society, children have like a lot less autonomy than they used to have, and and so they have less opportunities to be out on their own, like you know, doing their thing. And I feel like some of these like chosen one kind of narratives, where mm-hmm. it's the, on the child's shoulder to like save the world, really is about like that. Like it's I'm auto- mm-hmm. like I'm out there. I'm like fighting. It's it, it all depends on me, and I have my issues, as I know you do too, with the chosen one narrative. But I feel like that's part of what it's coming from, is this desire to be important and yeah. consequential in the world. And matter. And matter, yeah. 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 Other questions? Oh, yes, here you are. Uh, actually, this feeds right into it, which is, yeah, that idea of, like, To Kill a Mockingbird and Lord of the Flies used to be adult literature that trickled down. And you said earlier that you don't think about the age of your audience when you're writing um, and obviously, YA Lit has tons of adult fans. Um, and I guess my question is whether um, whether there's a concern that the idea of YA Lit as kind of a market segment, where it's supposed to start with teenagers, opens it up to this kind of policing of the language, where you guys are telling important stories and 
often it feels like the characters don't necessarily like bitter blue could have been 30 you know and and you know same thing with fire all the characters in these books are seated in a particular place but sometimes they feel like they could you know that's a choice not a necessity and i'm wondering whether um actually it's really just like a comment on the idea of like is there something interesting in this fight about YA literature being so policed even though and and this sort of movement from having these books that trickle down from adulthood and sort of maybe slide by um you know into like i'm thinking of the red pony which we read in seventh grade it's <laughs> such no. a hard book to write anyway oh maybe that's a book i shouldn't have read when i was a young adult <laughs> <laughs> and the pearl oh <laughs> it seems like I, I mean I think it's it's great, that's a great question. I mean you know YA kind of got taken out. It's kind of a uh, library services as well as marketing publishing category, right? But like that, I think what we ought to do is all go out and blog on what is adult literature. Or we should say, <laughs> yeah. uh, adult literature is so light, so oppressively light. Um, I mean, maybe this is the campaign we need to launch because I think all of this puts pressure, you right? You know what on, it is? You know, what is, what is adult literature? What is it's literature repetitive. for adults? It's repetitive. Often, so many times when I'm reading an adult book, I think to myself, you already said that three times. Do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> if my editor were editing this book, she would have struck that out the last three times. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, so I think that I, would I'm be... I'm not saying I don't... I, I lo- of course, I love many, many <laughs> books of all, but but there are, there, there are things you start to notice that make you start to wonder, where is this condescension coming from? Why is this mm-hmm. necessarily better? Yeah, absolutely. You know. And then how much of it has to do with just strategies of marketing, circulation, the sort of, you know, the, the yeah. realities of publishing, uh, especially in our blockbuster moment. Uh, and so I think that, that's yeah. a lot of it, too, is just how does the publishing industry work and, you know, how do those, how do changes, you know, uh, take place over time? And especially now, I think, because there's such a, uh, there's such an acceleration of the kind of blockbuster strategy, which is kind of a weird combination of, of, of sort of uh, grassroots sort of activism with giant public, you know, giant sort of um, connect, like we must have a movie and we must have a video game and we must have a website and everything. And that, that kind of coordination uh, along with this sort of tapping very deliberately into networks of librarians and teachers and tastemakers, right? Uh, it's been, uh, there's a book came out recently about the blockbuster as a kind of phenomenon, and it's, it's a fascinating thing. And she talks about this strategy, which kind of came to us from the movies. But actually, The Hunger Games, ironically, was the book that sort of benefited the most from that because it came out on the, uh, of the second book especially, but it came out on the heels of the Harry Potter success with Scholastic, right? And so, um, and, uh, and some... Yeah, I mean, exactly. Scholastic was kind of a, um, you know, a, not a fancy tier press, let's put it that way, because Goosebumps had kind of kept it afloat and allowed it to do different things, but, but, but then it really managed to leverage the success of, of Harry Potter and, and take some real risks on some other series. So it's a fascinating kind of case study in, in, uh, in publishing and, and, and so on, but that's slightly off topic. But the yeah. kind of... The well, kind of there, are so many, yeah. there are so many interesting angles and so many mm-hmm. ways to get at the same... Yeah, Same and there was a, there was a series that Scholastic did, and I'm now blanking the name of it, but it was it, the Push series, and the idea was oh. these would be books by teens for teens, and then the, oh. the the concept of teen kind of got incredibly more and more expansive. So some of the authors were 25, and, you know, <laughs> and especially if you tracked it from the beginning, you know, when you first start working on a project, and it takes forever. Some of these, and yeah. so that was kind of a fascinating, but it was a great idea, and the idea was we're going to publish 
you know, YA lit by YA, by YA people. And a lot of these articles have been not just about the literature, but about the people who are reading, consuming, uh, writing, you know, that, that the kind of the elasticity of YA as a kind of marker for people as well as for the literature is kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe eventually I'll just keep moving moving upwards and uh, we'll all be YA. <laughs> we we're always already YA, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Question. Yeah. Um, so this is slightly off topic, but so we're talking a lot about um, throughout this talk, talking about teenagers and how they identify and see themselves in these dystopian novels and they can place themselves in them. And I'm just thinking back to my own experience in high school and you know, reading, you know, Parks of Being a Wallflower first time and speak and books like that and really loving them but not looking them as, you know, this reflects my life at all just because there was such a lack of diversity in the characters. For me, it was like, oh, I'm it's like watching a movie. Like, this is, does, you know, and some of the themes did resonate with me, but largely I didn't see many um, people of color in the book, so I didn't really identify with them in that way. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about the current state of why literature and if you think, you know, making strides in that way or what kind of work you think needs to be done so more kids feel represented in, um, in YA and don't just see it like I did, like watching a movie <laughs> and not yeah. placing themselves in it. Can I just say r- really fast, that's a big part of the reason we wanted to put the darkness in quotes is that it's so ironic that she should write this article called Darkness Too Visible. Do we say that before? I'm losing track. Sort but of, I yeah. just think it's really important. Really You're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's a real problem. Would you agree? Oh, uh, yes. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of an, an appalling situation, honestly. Um, my, my own personal uh, place of discomfort with it, too, is that because I am white, which is part of the reason my books have been successful, I can write about people of color in my next books, and they will be published. I can probably say to my editor, don't you dare put a white person on that cover. They will listen to me. Um, And I'm uncomfortable with having that power when so many writers of color aren't getting published. Um, I'm also... um, uncomfortable looking back at my own work with how thoughtless I was in the beginning setting up my own world on that axis and uh, thinking a lot, a lot about it now for my future books, trying to be more more conscious. Um, but it, it's, just, it's just such a, a white industry. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I mean, the statistics that are kept by the Children's Book Council, et cetera, really point to the persistence of this. Some tiny percentage of the total books published are published by by, uh, writers of color. And it's a huge problem. And, you know, it came up in a lot of the, maybe some of you followed the reaction to uh, Woodson's winning uh, the the book award for um, Brown Girl Dreaming and the kind of remarks that Daniel Handler made off the cuff, uh, which was uh, really problematic. And there was this whole series of, uh, uh, responses to that, and, and she wrote an, uh, Woodson wrote an editorial and basically pointed out once again we are talking about a tiny percentage of books across all these genres, uh, and you know um, how can you even uh, be there's no there's no way to be playful about these issues in this kind of environment basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Bitch magazine recently did a series on um, books about girls of color in dystopias, and it was. Um, they came up with a, a bunch of different examples, and I thought I actually brought it with me, but I seem not to have. Um, but 
determined that it's pretty depressing how few examples they could come up with, and also how few examples they could come up with of uh, girls of color who survive the apocalypse. Mm. Um, well, and also, can I just say, like, even when when authors yeah, put in characters of color, the ability of readers to not notice that, like the Rue controversy, and that is a yeah. character of color who unfortunately dies, so she doesn't really count as a survivor. But, I mean, that whole controversy was so awful because here we actually had a character of color and all these people reacted to the movie, I don't know if you guys followed this, by saying, why did they have to make Rue a black girl? That just ruins it. And she's clearly marked in the, yeah. in the book as African, or dark-skinned, I should say. So it's outrageous, you know, to have this reaction, right? <laughs> But it, so it's, I don't know, I don't know where to go with that. I'm just expressing yeah. outrage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there has been a campaign. Yeah. I don't know if everyone, I, I know the children's lit folks know about we need diverse books, and many people yeah. also do. And so I think there's really a, a, a serious recognition of the problem and an attempt to to sort of. And there's a, and there's a lot of dialogue if you're looking for it. Um, it can be uh, it can be really depressing to get into the various. Um, Bruhahas that occur because it's the internet, and so people, you know, you have to read the comment section in order to follow the dialogue. But comment, comment sections are so toxic. Mm. So, and and another interesting, um, again, speaking just personally as a writer, um, a factor with all of this is that while this is one of the many things I think about a lot and talk about a lot uh, with friends and try to get feedback from from readers, uh, um, it's also something that writers need to get a certain amount of criticism about and then push it away because it, 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 it you, you kind of need to protect your own writing space. So it's this, this interesting balance between, okay, I really want to be engaging with this topic, but not necessarily so much with the internet, which is just, it's just, it's just a little too much, mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it can get counterproductive. Mm -hmm. We have a questioner. <laughs> uh, so first, I just want to start, I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm probably going to fumble over some of my words. So um, I was reading the Divergent series like a couple months ago, and I remember, uh, I remember reading about Triss and what her feelings were about how like she wanted to take things into all, to into into her own hands and I think I took that personally as like she's trying to become more independent on herself and trying to not trying to like kind of just to become more independent so she won't have to rely on a lot of other people mm. and so and so that kind of inspired me as well because on my 14th birthday I wanted I asked my parents it's like can I just spend it? Can I just go on a day with Bo uh, to Boston with some of my friends and take like the train in by myself with some of my friends? And they they were totally for it. They were like, "Yeah, go off." And I was like, I was so excited, and I was just and I was so glad that like uh, Tris like got me inspired about that. And so I was just uh, and it just felt awesome that I actually went out and I felt like, oh, I'm I am like them. It's like it's not we're not this. There's not this huge gap away from us. And so my to get back to kind of to like the question part of it is that my question is do you guys like strive to create books that inspire kids to be independent and to go do things that they want to do or or are you just doing it to just to entertain and something and what happens yeah. after along is completely fine. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you. That's a really good question. Um, and by the way, you didn't fumble. <laughs> um, I think what I am, I have, you know, I keep repeatedly say that I, I'm not thinking about my, who my reader is, but I would have to say that without question, when I'm, when I'm, so when I'm sitting down and it's actually a writing day, I'm not thinking about who my reader is, but when I'm planning the book and I'm planning who this character is, I'm thinking about a lot of things like what you, uh, what you described. I, I'm thinking, if I, if I make this character do this, what is that saying about the world, about a person this age, about whatever the issue is? Um, and I think for me, my ultimate goal, if I have a goal for young readers, is that they come out of the books with self-respect. They, they get some sort of self-respect from reading the book, some sort of um, confidence, uh, knowledge that that they are valuable. If that makes sense. That's really, I think that's really important to me. Did you get Did you get sorted into Dauntless? Because that would be the that would be the first trick. Then you have to run and catch the train as it's, as it's <laughs> just thinking about that whole sequence. So. That and by the way, that's a really interesting that mm -hmm. theme of being sorted, mm -hmm. right? Which I feel like comes from the giver, which we haven't talked about that much. But like the, the you know how you all get tracked. I feel like man, that talk about attesting to like anxiety about how our culture is getting more <laughs> striated, so that you just do what your parents did and there's yeah. no mobility. Like I feel like. Maybe that's where some of that darkness comes from, that sorting move. Do you know? I don't know. Anyway, we have another <laughs> questioner. Huh. Okay. Um, Kenneth, you spoke a little bit about kind of the cyclical nature of these criticisms of genres getting too dark, of all these terrible things. And I think if you look back further, when novels started being a real force in literature as opposed to kind of weird experimental things, they were derided as being, you know, they were going to ruin the minds of the readers, especially women. And so I was just curious about kind of this theme of criticism as a tool of social control and how you think that's currently continuing to play out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, and I think, you, I think you're totally, totally on target, and it plays out across all, probably all genres or, uh, what's the right word, uh, registers of kind of creative work. Certainly music is, is a big flashpoint, right, as we all know. So thinking about all the reaction to, in the 20s, to, you know, to, to scandalous, oh, yeah. yeah, scandalous music and dancing and, uh, and so forth, and all the anxiety about the policing of, of dancing. And a lot of that, I think, was also uh, anxiety about, about immigrant kids specifically. Um, there was a, a scholar named Sarah Chin who's made the case that a lot of what we think of as the generation gap actually was modeled specifically on the gap between first-generation immigrants and their kids growing up in this country who assimilated quickly, the parents didn't. And so this became a kind of, um, this became sort of mythologized, she says, as a kind of, uh, you know, a permanent thing. It just kind of cuts across our races and classes. So that's a pretty interesting kind of phenomenon. And she places that at about that same time. Um, so I think, I think, but I think you're right. I think a lot of the reaction is very much about policing behavior and about kind of controlling uh, taste. I think it's about taste um, taste management, which is always class, right? Always class based, and always, um, you know, I think inf inflected by other kinds of things. And um, feed. Mm. pardon me, makes me think of feed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's what feed is about. 
it's, yeah, in fact, it's, it's kind of the nightmare scenario of total control and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and also mindless consumption, the two things uh, kind of paired, paired with that. But yeah, and I'm sure, and I think you write complaints about the novel, sound a lot like complaints about comics, a lot like complaints about the radio, about television, uh, certainly about the internet. So you get these, you get this repetition, um, and particular anxieties about YA lit, I think, don't go back quite as far just because people, you know, I think you do see them. You see them in the 60s, you see them in the 20s a little bit, um, but maybe that's kind of when they're first really on the radar in the same way. Um, although there were reactions to some of the 19th century um, sort of texts as well, um, especially if you, if you have a, a loose definition of, of adolescence, if you just go youth. Youth is a kind of term that cuts across all of these categories. Um, so I think uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is about uh, that kind of um, you know sort of uh, surveillance and control, um, you know, which may other people may see in more positive terms. You know, um, education, whereas parenting. We, whereas yeah. we might find it dystopic. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a bit dystopic. Yeah, that's a great. Any final questions? All right, thank you so much. You've been an amazing audience. Thank you. Thank you.